Hello, everybody. Thanks for coming to ARC 205. Uh, my name is Paul Underwood. This is Keith Horwood here on the right. Uh, he'll be talking a little bit later. Um, talk about a theater. This is incredible. Uh, this is the closest thing to fulfilling a lifelong dream of being a magician in Vegas. Uh, I feel like Penn and Teller here. So um, thanks for coming today. Uh, what I'm hoping that you guys draw out of this session is whether you work for an enterprise or a startup or a medium-sized company, I think there are lessons that we can learn from startups on how to build and deploy on top of AWS. I myself am a AWS startup solutions architect, and then over the course of the last two and a half years, I've talked to about 800 different startups, and I've had the opportunity to see you know, the startups that are successful, the way they build on top of AWS, and I'm hoping I can bring some of those lessons that I've seen out in the field to everybody here today. So my expectations for you as the audience today is that you have some familiarity with the 100-level AWS constructs. I'm not going to be spending time today explaining what things like API Gateway or Lambda does. I'm assuming you guys have that, that, that notion already. Right. Uh, the structure of the presentation, we're going to talk about three different architecture patterns, um, you know, sort of in-tier architectures, containerized architecture and serverless. And then for each of those patterns, we're going to talk about the implications, the choice of those particular architecture patterns have from a cost, performance, and team structure perspective. And then in order to give you guys something that you can sort of walk away with today uh, cleanly, um, my clicker broke, uh, is, uh, a, uh, is a deep dive with Keith from Polybit. Um, Keith has... Uh, runs a, uh, manages a, you know, thousands of different Lambda functions, both for himself and his client, and his clients. And I think that in the process of, uh, of doing that, he's learned a lot of lessons that I think we can all benefit from, from hearing about. So when I started putting this deck together, I started thinking about, of those 800 startups I've talked to, what are some commonalities that I see? And, you know, I think most startups are expecting scale either, you know, ideally having thousands of concurrent users or millions of concurrent users at some point. Um, I think all startups are interested in differentiating themselves from competition or from other startups that might be competing with them, and so there's a real focus on features instead of standardization and internal process. Uh, I think a lot of startups have lean IT departments. Often the co-founder might be the only engineering resource on the team. Uh, and also startups have an innate appreciation for the fact that if they can keep their costs low, they can have a longer runway. But when I thought about that, I realized we're all, we're all thinking about that. Um, this clicker. Uh, we're all thinking about that same thing. We're all wondering, you know, we would all love to have an extra, you know, pair of hands on our IT staff. We're all interested in developing features. You know, we want to satisfy the requirement, you know, those who own our requirements documents. And we all expect scale in some capacity once we move out of test or POC. So we're all here at reInvent today because, you know, as attendees at reInvent, you're also probably very concerned about the well-architected pillars. Security, priority zero, it's table stakes these days. Uh, performance, reliability, cost efficiency, all of these things are what draws us all here to reInvent. And amongst some of those best startups that I've talked to over the last two and a half years, they've done a great job uh, aligning some of these priorities together when they're choosing the architectures that they want to build on top of AWS. So um, 
how have people done in-tier architectures historically? And when I talk about in-tier architectures, I'm talking about the kinds of frameworks like Flask or Django or Spring, um, and, and sort of what, you know, what is the common pattern that people see? And this should look fairly familiar to most of you. This is sort of a, a con, you know, sort of a generic in-tier monolithic architecture. You've got a load balancer up at the front. You've got an application tier, ideally more than, you know, two or more application servers. And you've got your database in the back end doing synchronous replication to the standby. The, and ideally those are in two separate data centers. So how are startups doing that on AWS today? Well, this is a, uh, a pretty simplistic workflow that I'll walk through here. So the first thing we'll do is we'll just clone our code that we're looking to deploy. And then I can run EB init. And EB here is the AWS Elastic Beanstalk command line interface, which is different from the AWS CLI. And the EB init command will actually create my high-level application. It will automatically detect what code I've just cloned and make a guess about what language it looks like I'm trying to deploy. Uh, the EB create command that you see there next will actually spin up the Elastic Load Balancer and the application servers and the database. PG Restore, that's a common Postgres command. I just chose Postgres as an example here. And PG Restore, maybe we're going to restore the database that EB Create created for us into the database that EB created for us. And then the EB Set Environment command allows us to set environment variables. Um, and at that point, in theory, I should be able to actually open my application and see it working. Now, of course, there's going to be changes. Things need to be made. And so if, let's say, I wanted to have a test environment, I can run EV create test, and that will create an exact replica of my prod environment in a test fashion and also uh, point my local Beanstalk workspace to point to a test environment instead of production. I then use my normal standard development workflow type get commands, et cetera, um, and then I can run EB deploy. We'll actually deploy those changes onto those servers that we just we just instantiated. Uh, let's say we test everything. Everything looks good. Our tests are passing. If I want to deploy that that content or that new application and those changes into my production environment, I run EB switch prod. That points my local Beanstalk development environment to production now, and then I can run EB deploy, and that will deploy my changes into prod. So. Uh, very clean path, very few commands to get that done. The EBCLI is a really, really powerful tool that integrates directly into your developer workflows. If you haven't used it yet, can't encourage you enough to do that. So what do we get with those commands? Well, just like that sort of generic architecture we saw before, we've got our elastic load balancer on the front. We've got our two application servers and an auto-scaling group. And it also, we also launched that RDS instance with the multi-AZ standby on day one. Now, we also have a test environment that we created, and so you can see we've got a replica of that test environment behind it. But that's not all. Uh, we also get some, uh, some benefits. This is clicker. Uh, we also get some significant benefits from, from Beanstalk. So it, Beanstalk will handle a lot of the you know, IAM and VPC networking requirements that you might have tried to manage yourself in the past comes with CloudWatch metrics that, you know, you can get detailed CloudWatch metrics on your Beanstalk stacks, um, and also gives you the opportunity to use CloudWatch logs for your application logs. And then through EV extensions, you can also define additional specialist services like a Redis cluster or S3 objects, that kind of thing, 
and your EV configurations. So I like to call Beanstalk uh, the kind of the cheat code to interior on AWS. It really builds you into the best practices from the start. And uh, you know, it, because the Beanstalk CLI works so closely with your standard development workflows, it's just a quick way to build into best practices right from the start. So what, 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 is the co- what are the costs for this? What does the cost for this look like? Well, a development-grade stack, which I characterize as a you know, single T2 micro, T, T2 micro for the application server, single database uh, uh, T2 micro uh, for you know, storage. I don't need two of them because I'm not worried about high availability in production. And roughly, you could expect you know, hundreds of concurrent connections against this development-grade stack. The production-grade stack uh, is, in our case, using two M4 larges and two M4 larges for your database. That roughly costs about 320. Now, there's been some recent price reductions on the T2 and M4 instance families, so these numbers are actually a little high now. And these numbers also don't include some of our other cost-saving options, like reserved instances or spot pricing. So just rough numbers to kind of give you a, a rough sense of what that, what that stack actually costs. So talked a little bit about in-tier. Uh, now let's talk about containers and what, how containers are sort of evolving and moving on top of AWS. Now, I think a lot of people may not understand this or visualize this right off the bat, but a proper containerized architecture might look very, very much like that VM-based architecture that we just talked about. You might have a Docker container with, for Nginx, providing your load balancing, SSL termination, light, light routing. You've got your application tier, maybe that's running your, your Spring app or your Django application. And then you may choose to run a MySQL container on, uh, on a Docker, uh, in Docker as well, and set up and configure that synchronous replication yourself. Now, in practice though, the best approach on AWS is to take advantage of the AWS ecosystem. Instead of you trying to manage and configure your own Nginx container for load balancing, et cetera, you could use our application load balancer to do the same thing. It can also do SSL termination and uh, light, light routing as well. Obviously, you want to use Docker for your application tier. No, no surprises there. But I would also really encourage you into, instead of thinking about deploying your own MySQL container and managing that all yourself, use RDS. RDS is built, uh, we manage it on your behalf. It doesn't require you to set up a lot of the configurations and synchronization and and backups and all that. Just let RDS do that for you. Uh, So how does a startup today build something on, on ECS? Uh, so that AWS ECS login, that's actually from the AWS command line interface, and that's going to give us a really long username and password that we can use to log into the AWS ECS Docker repo. Um, then I use my standard Docker uh, development workflow commands to build and tag instances or you know, images into my Docker repo. And then, kind of like the Beanstalk command line interface, the ECS has its own command line interface as well, the ECS CLI. And that first command is actually configuring my local development environment to point to that specific cluster that I'm looking to deploy into that specific region. The ECS CLI up command is the actual mechanism that will launch the underlying container instances that my Docker uh, images are going to be running on top of. 
Now, I can also use that ECS CLI to um, create a service that compo based on a Docker Compose file. Uh, and then if I want to start that service, it's just a matter of simply saying service start. That's a really quick way to deploy Docker Compose and your images on top of ECS. Although, the gotcha here is that that ECS CLI doesn't uh, allow you to define application load balancing or auto-scaling group details. To do that, if you wanted to supply that additional level of configuration, the ECS, the AWS CLI, has an ECS command that will allow you to specify a service definition file where you can include those details about how you want your auto-scaling groups and how you want your, um, and how you want your, uh, your application load balancers to be configured. So on the left side here, we've got our container registry that we logged into. We have our Docker files that we've, that we've defined and checked into that repo. Uh, we built and, and checked into that repo. We've got our Docker Compose files, and we've defined those into services and tasks. Uh, and our container instances were launched by that ECS up command. So we're looking pretty good here. And so we're able to kind of, and then once that's all complete, we'll ask our services and tasks to be run by our scheduler, the ECS scheduler. Now, I, I highlighted RDS in here because those previous commands that we just showed didn't actually include RDS or define launching RDS instances. Uh, that would be a matter of going to the console and launching it there or something to that effect. So ECS gives us some great stuff, but what about, uh, what about, uh, sheesh, uh, what about service discovery? I think there's going to be some announcements this week. I'm not sure if they've already come out yet or not about service discovery in EC, within ECS. Uh, how do you actually do, how do you scale the underlying container instances? That's also something that's not done by the CLI. Uh, instead, you'll actually need to create your own auto-scaling group and uh, let that auto-scaling group launch your underlying container instances. So what does this cost exactly? Uh, the so a production-grade EC2-based stack that we talked about is, like we said, $320 a month. A production-grade ECS stack is basically going to cost the exact same thing. The underlying instance types are the, are the, are the same. That said, a production-grade EC2 stack, you might only feel comfortable maxing out at 40% utilization for CPU or what have you, because if that one of those boxes failed, you want, you want to make sure that other box is going to be able to handle that additional load. Well, in ECS, you're, allow, you're able to, you're able to pack, uh, pack containers more densely on your underlying EC2 instances. And so you might be more comfortable uh, actually running at 80% utilization because you've got the auto-scaling groups with managing the container-level scaling. So uh, in a way, they're equal, but I believe that ECS gives you the ability to pack your containers a little more densely than you would have historically done on a conventional ECS and EC2 instance. So I want to talk a little bit about, about the stack challenge uh, and, and, what, and how DevOps plays into that stack challenge. And this is the one opinion that I'm going to try to give today, and that's that traditional VM and container architectures are rooted in emulating physical classic servers. And because of that, they inherit the stack challenge. And Werner Vogels talks about this a lot. And, and really, I think I interpret the stack challenge to mean in a conventional EC2 instance, how do you manage the operating system? How do you manage who, the users who are allowed to log into the box, the files, your bootstrapping commands? These are all headaches that we all have to sweat 
and, and worry about. Now, Docker makes things a lot easier because we're able to kind of build these images with all of these things pre-configured, and we're able to check those Docker files into source control and things like that. That's nice. But we still have the underlying container instances that we have to worry about. Uh, we also have to worry about any supporting core services that need to be running on that container instance. For example, like console for service discovery or something to that effect. And so you're still inheriting all the stack challenge, whether or not you're on Docker or, EC or, or on conventional EC2 instances. And so tooling gets us so far, right? We talked about Beanstalk, makes a lot of this stuff easier. We've got Chef, Ansible, very popular tools out there today. But as your complexity scales, you're eventually going to need some DevOps staff. And, and that's because your developers are not DevOps folks. Your DevOps folks are, are thinking about process and standardization and consistency, and your developers are focused on delivering features. So what does that end up leading to? Even if you're running an agile shop, if you've got this separation of concerns between your developers and your testers and your operations folks, you're inevitably going to get yourself into a situation where feature zero is being worked on and deployed by your ops team, while your dev team's already two features ahead working on that, ne that next feature. And that looks like a waterfall and may potentially lead to a lack of agility amongst your team down the road. So AWS, you know, one of our major drivers for when we release new features or new services is we talk to customers, and we hear customers complaining about things like the stack challenge. And so, uh, <laughs> it's quicker. So AWS is back at the lab. We're talking with our customers. We're, we're asking ourselves questions. We're listening to our We're listening to what our customers are telling us. And you know, like I said before, because these traditional VM and you know, containerized architectures are rooted in emulating classic physical servers, nobody really wants to care about servers. Um, you know, let's treat them like cattle, not pets. Uh, feature development, like I said before, is so far is much more valuable than solving server-centric stack problems. Nobody wants to be writing glue code when they could be developing features. And scale is another issue. I mean, how, why can't things just scale automatically? Why do I need to scale on the increments of individual virtual machines or instances? Um, so let's just put the server-centric architecture in a little historical uh, context. Uh, the ENIAC 1946, it's interesting, the ENIAC is actually in the Smithsonian in DC right next to R2-D2 and C3PO, which is, I, I find fascinating. But, you know, that was sort of, you know, I'll, call, I'll kick that off as like the, the genesis of the monolithic architecture. 1979 CH process root, uh, process isolation came out, which sort of set the stage for containerization uh, on, on, in Linux down the road. 2006 EC2 came out and sort of a follow-on, uh, you know, sort of a generational follow-on from, uh, from process isolation, and startups are now able to build and launch EC2 instances very quickly. But all of these things, containers, VMs, monolithic architectures, these are all server-centric. We're all thinking about servers. We're all thinking about that stack challenge. And so what's next, right? What, what moves us past? What's going to be the next evolution? What's going to be the next sort of influence? And I believe that's serverless technology today, things like Lambda, things like API Gateway. So I think a lot of people are confused about how to define what serverless means and what exactly is serverless so here's a quick architecture diagram of a serverless web application 
that you might deploy on top of AWS today. So first step is, is that maybe we chose Angular to be our front-end application. I'm a huge Angular fan myself. We're going to store the sort of Angular app and all the assets and images and stuff like that into our S3 bucket, and we'll front that with CloudFront. And that'll serve all of our example.com users when they come to example.com. So once that user's pulled up that app, they need to start making API requests. So we'll use Route 53 to configure api.example.com to point to, for example, API Gateway instead. And AWS Lambda behind API Gateway to handle those dynamic requests. For persistence, in our case, maybe we'll be using something like Amazon DynamoDB. And Lambda is perhaps writing, reading and writing directly in and out of that database, and, uh, or perhaps even our clients could be writing and writing directly out of DynamoDB. Uh, and, you know, this is, in my mind, incredibly exciting, right? Where's the server here, right? Where's the operating system that I'm managing? Well, the answer to that is the operating system is AWS, and that's pretty thrilling. I mean, talk about magic earlier, but, I mean, this is, in a way, in my mind, an exciting, magical type of architecture because I am not worried about operating systems anymore. The only operating system that I'm worried about are the ones that my clients bought on their desktop or on their mobile devices. So how are startups doing that on AWS today? Well, uh, there's historically been a pretty, pretty stiff pioneer tax that a lot of people have suffered through over the last couple years, uh, or the last year or two. And uh, Flourish is a service that we'll be announcing, uh, that we're announcing here at reInvent, which is designed to make things a lot easier for you to define in a sort of declarative markup language similar to cloud formation, components and architectures like we just like I just showed. But what else is really exciting about about serverless is in, in it's that you're gonna have a much easier time uh, talking to your CFO about about what it costs. So we just talked about you know three hundred and twenty dollars a month for a server but we didn't really talk about for you know for that VM based architecture but i didn't you know and roughly you might be able to get thousands or you know low hun, you know high hundreds of concurrent connections or something to that effect but you can't really price it's very difficult to price per user what that costs but in the serverless world because we're really paying for what we drink we're able to actually price out what an individual user's activity might be over the course of a month so imagine that website that we just, you know, that, that website that we just described in a serverless way. Uh, let's say you get every, every, an average user visits about 10 pages a day, makes about five API requests over the course of those 10 pages, and those, you know, involve reads and writes and things like that. And you can see on the right, we're able to literally price out that monthly cost per user based on that access pattern. And, you know, this is, you know, similar, there are, there are existing tiered pricing discounts as well that come into play as things start to scale, right? CloudFront data transfer, S3 storage, as, as that increases, there are, there are tiered pricing models. So it might actually even be lower than this when you're at scale. But this is a fun conversation to have with your CFO because you're like, hey, I'm, I'm able to tell you exactly what it is per user. We know what the conversion rates are per user and how much profit we make. And it's, it's a very exciting conversation because it completely changes the economic discussion that you might be having in, in, in the past with your CFOs today. So microservices is a evolving and, and sort of blowing up uh, key word these days. And, you know, similar to 
what we just went through for like what is serverless, I'm going to do my best to describe what microservices are, uh, what a microservice might look like on, on day zero. So I think one of the most important aspects to remember, in my opinion, to think about when you're designing a microservice is that your developer who owns or your developer or your team who develops a microservice needs to be responsible for all phases of the SDLC for that microservice. And that app example architecture we just went through uh, on the left here, it's completely reasonable to assume that an individual developer could own all of that and own the test and the dev and the operations and maintenance because they're no longer really sweating those heavy DevOps concerns that they inherited with the stack challenge, they're now able to manage this themselves. Now, as complexity scales up, things, things start, we need to think about splitting up that microservice. And I already mentioned Werner once in this talk, but he's a, he's a hell of a character. So, uh, I like to, you know, he talks about, he talks about microservices at AWS, or about, at Amazon rather, at large, and how we decide when the time is right to split up a microservice into, uh, to split a microservices into two. And the answer at Amazon, at least, is when you cannot feed that development team with two pizzas, that's about the right time that you actually need to start splitting off that microservice and that it should be its own. So in our case, uh, in this example, we have our front end of our application. Maybe that's what that specific team is going to continue to own. And your uh, core side API will be will sort of mitosis out from that existing service, and a new team will be responsible for managing that specific feature. So this process may continue uh, on and on for for a while, and uh, and to where you eventually might have two or three for different microservices. And in this example, maybe each each microservice team or each microservice developer has chosen to use Lambda and Dynamo and S3 as their primary mechanisms. But the key here is that they're all responsible for all phases of the SDLC within their particular microservice. I think that's very, very critical to a, the definition of what a microservice truly is. You may have a lead architect up at the front who is responsible for managing what I'll call the core services, the sort of relatively static definitions about what, you know, your DNS configurations or maybe API gateway and what the RESTful contract, you know, what that RESTful API should look like between your microservices. Um, but the other thing that might happen is if service team one has, decides that they have the internal within their team, the operational experience with Docker, and maybe they know that they're, they've got lots of different small containers that they're trying to pack into lots of servers, let them choose Docker. You shouldn't be, you, when you're in a true microservice environment, what you're most interested in, what you're evaluating your teams on, is based on you know, how cost-performant are they, how reliable are they, not so much are they following our standards and processes, are they following this. Let the service team manage the SDLC themselves and measure their success and measure their effectiveness based on, you know, well-architected uh, pillars like reliability and security and things like that. And then perhaps service team two decides, well, we've actually got this particular service needs to handle thousands of rec concurrent requests per second consistently across the month, in which case, after they've done the math, they may have figured out that, you know, Lambda might be too expensive, in which case, you know, a traditional instance-based architecture might be more appropriate. 
Let your team pick the right tool for the job. Now, you may eventually have your big data guy come on down the road, and, and he owns Redshift, and he owns uh, EMR or Kinesis or, or that sort of thing. And your mobile developer, maybe they own AWS Mobile Hub or uh, Amazon Mobile Analytics. That's the, uh, you know, it's up, let your team uh, own and pick what they, what they need to be responsible for. So we've talked a little bit about, uh, about what that in-tier and containerized uh, architecture looks like on, uh, on AWS. We've, you know, and, and we understand the DevOps implication of the stack challenge, et cetera. Uh, but what about in a serverless world, right? I mentioned Flourish, um, but, you know, what are some practical techniques, practical things that you guys can leave here today to think about when you're going to deploy your next microservice or your next serverless um, architecture on top of AWS. And with that, I'm going to hand it over to Keith. And like I said, Keith manages thousands of Lambda functions, both for himself and his company and for, uh, and for his customers as well. And so in the process of hosting all of those Lambda functions, he learned quite a bit about what it looks like to have that done in an organized way. So with that, I'll pass it to Keith, who will kind of walk you through some of those tips that he's learned over the last two years. Cool. Thank you very much, Paul. Um, so hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Keith Horwood. As Paul mentioned, I'm the founder and CEO of Polybit, uh, where we've actually built Standard Lib, which is a central registry for microservices and a function as a service platform built on top of AWS Lambda. So as you can imagine, um, as Paul mentioned, we're already managing thousands of microservices for um, developers all over the globe, as well as our own services. And so I'd kind of like to talk to you about the process we go through uh, for really unlocking practical serverless development. Um, serverless is cool. We're all interested in using it. Uh, but it, when it comes to actually putting it to practice, how do we start managing our teams around this? How do we organize around this? Right? So we've, we've listened to Paul's talk. And uh, great job, by the way. Um, and, and you know what? We're sold. Uh, we want to go serverless. We're like, yeah, this, this sounds like a pretty good idea. Um, listen, serverless is, is scalable. It's scalable beyond your wildest imagination, going from 10 users to 10 million daily requests, not a problem. Uh, there's, there's decreased cost, which Paul mentioned as well, that maps directly to compute time. Um, so from a finance and from an economic decision, it's, it's a straightforward decision to make. Um, one of the most important aspects is, uh, Paul covered this as well, is organizational compartmentalization. Um, and what this means is instead of having tens, <laughs> maybe even hundreds if it gets unruly, um, of developers working on the same monolithic code base, uh, you can really separate your development teams into the, uh, the two pizza rule. I think, I think Paul kind of uh, hammered it down there. Um, and, and separate your teams into smaller groups that are working on services that they pretty much just, just own and, and work as almost lean development teams, startups in their own right, right? And then there's also this, uh, this Unix philosophy. Now, I come from the, the Node.js and the JavaScript world, and so a lot of people are really happy with this Unix philosophy. The idea that uh, it's, it's service atomization, essentially. Um, the fact that each service that you have, a standalone service, you have separation of concerns, it does one thing and does it really, really well. Um, and that's something that you really get to approach with, with serverless design and serverless architecture, and you really get to implement that on, on a team basis. So all of this stuff is pretty exciting. Um, now, before I go into the actual details of putting it like in the weeds and, and putting it into practice, um, I want to take like a giant step back um, and, and sort of 
touch on something that, that Paul very briefly covered, but it's how we really think about AWS uh, at, at Polybit now, and, and especially with, with serverless architecture. Um, now, what we view AWS as is really the system architecture of the web, right? It's software configurable infrastructure. Um, there are lots of ways to get anything done, as, as pulling over uh, a ton of different architectural patterns that your, that your teams can use. Um, but what's the right way? What's the best way? What's the most cost-effective way? How's my team going to be able to ship code and ship products quickly? Um, so, so taking this perspective and seeing AWS as the system architecture of the web, we start thinking, um, relating it uh, to really like the system architecture of a single computer. When developers, when a lot of people on the, the development teams that you're currently managing or working on, whatever, write code in JavaScript, for example, um, they write a function, and then they execute that function, and it just works. Did they have to think about memory addressing for that function, where that actually exists in the computer's memory? No. So when you think about serverless architecture, you're kind of thinking that kind of applied at the systems level, right? When I want to execute a service, why do I have to know geographically where that service is contained? Why do I have to know what VM that's running on, what container that's running on, where it's actually coming from? Why can't I just write a service and have it run? And so thinking about this next layer of abstraction and really the tooling required to make development around this next layer of abstraction tenable is really where, where we're focused. And in order to really build that abstraction layer, really what, what it comes down to is you're just thinking about organizational tooling for serverless architecture. Um, so there are a couple of components here that, that everyone's uh, on their own. I mean, this, this is a new space, right? Everybody's working on kind of figuring out, okay, how do we think about serverless microservices? Um, well, we gotta think about six different components, really, right? There's sharing. Uh, how do we share? We, we build a microservice. How do we either share it with people in the global community or share it within our organization? How do we make sure people can access this and know that it exists? Um, there's a discovery layer, which is kind of tied into sharing, uh, in that a new developer joins your team and they want to build a service that accomplishes something specifically. Well, I mean, you could be a small startup and have only 10 people, or you could have hundreds or thousands of employees. You want to make sure that you're not reinventing the wheel every time you want to create a microservice. So how can you discover the, the microservices that have already been built? Um, how do you manage development environments? I mean, there, there's a difference between, uh, like, a, going back to the old, like, server-based development, um, but there's a difference between, like, a staging server and a development server and, and something you put out for release. Uh, how do you manage that? Now, microservice releases, you probably want them to be immutable, um, but development and staging environments, they could be potentially completely mutable, right? I mean, you can tear them down and spin them up whenever you want. You're not relying, you're not having any production-grade tasks relying on these, so how do you configure that? Deployment pipelines. Um, what does that look like? I mean, there's been an explosion in open source tooling um, around serverless, even in the past couple of, of, of weeks. Um, we've seen tons of stuff pop up. Uh, so what, what is the best deployment pipeline to use? How do I figure this out? Um, and then versioning. I just mentioned uh, service mutability um, for things like staging environments uh, versus immutability for releases. If you have hundreds or thousands of microservices uh, and, and you want to push out a new release, you don't want to just overwrite your last release and, and potentially break the interactions. I mean, it's a combinatorics issue, right? Um, break a bunch of interactions between pre-existing services. Uh, so how do you handle microservice versioning? Um, and then there's legacy application interoperability. And this is something that's actually really exciting. It's actually pretty straightforward to take care of, um, but it's actually really exciting about the serverless space is that you can use legacy monolithic end-tier architectures that you've already built with and start deconstructing them essentially piecemeal um, and putting in microservices, serverless microservices um, running on Lambda uh, in, their, in their place one at a time. 
Um, so this is a, a really interesting perspective here. So how do we take care of that? I'm, I'm going to teach you kind of how we take care of that, and then I'm going to walk you step-by-step step how, if you want to build this stuff on your own, um, how you can take care of it uh, within your own organization. So what we do uh, at Polybit with Standard Lib, I mean, Standard Lib, it's, a, it's, a miss, it's the missing registry for services globally, really. And we have some command line tools that really easily interface with our library. You can kind of almost view it like uh, in the same way git push would, um, when dealing with version control, you do something like git, git push would push up the newest version of your code to a remote git server. Uh, we have a command line tool called lib. You can just type lib up, and it instantly deploys your microservice. Um, so very, very simple way to deal with microservice development, microservice creation, um, and this is all running on, on the system architecture of the web, like I mentioned, AWS on Lambda. Um, and, and these are command line tools available on our GitHub repo at poly slash stdlib standard lib. Um, on top of that, the second component to what we built uh, is really I was talking about this registry of, of services. Um, when you want that discoverability, that sharing layer within your organization, uh, now, you probably already use something like GitHub for version control, right? So you have developers come into your organization. They want to check out how code's been developed in the past. You, link, you, you give them permission to access your Git repos. They look at GitHub. They can see the documentation. Now, what about services that, that people in your organization have already deployed? Um, I mean, this is, this is an example of our registry page. Uh, one of our developers, one of the, the community members, um, built a stateless chess game where you can put in the, the state of the chessboard and a move, and it will give you the new, it'll tell you whether it's valid or not and, and give you the, uh, the new state of the, of the chessboard. So this is an example of, of automated documentation, really, that, uh, that we provide that comes with, with building this service so people can very easily organize around the microservices they build. Now, how do we do this behind the scenes? Like, right, you, you want to you implement this in your own organization. Now, maybe use our tools, or maybe you say, you know what, no, we need something very custom, and I, I want to build it, I want to build it myself. Um, so the first thing you want to look at is sharing and discovery. Uh, how do I really get this out to my organization? How do I, how do I establish some standards um, for the DevOps team, for the developers, on how they can actually access the microservice? Well, the first thing that we focus on at Polybit, I mean, this is one of the very first questions we had. How do we, where do we put our microservices um, in terms of HTTP? And it's a super easy question to answer, actually. Um, if you're running Burt's Shoe Company, burtsshoes.com, say, it's likely that you might have an API on api.birtshoes.com. Um, okay, so, so how do we think about microservices? Well, we, we just prefix with the, uh, with the subdomain f, um, f for function. I mean, these are functional microservices. You're just thinking about deploying functions out in the cloud. So f.yourdomain.com slash your service. Now, now, what's the pathway look like to actually execute this Lambda function? Uh, first, you're going to go through DNS routing. So obviously, you have to set up your subdomain um, and the appropriate routing with uh, Route 53, the AWS service. Um, that will send you to uh, API Gateway, which you can then integrate with your Lambda services. Um, so this is like the de facto standard AWS suggestion for uh, really how to start building with Lambda and API Gateway in this serverless context. Now, there are other ways that you can build this setup, and we'll talk about that um, in a little bit, uh, where we can use almost a hybrid approach for the gateway if we need to do some complex computation uh, before we talk to our service, but we'll, we'll get to that a little bit later. So that's the sharing and discovery layer. Um, over HTTP, f.yourdomain.com. Uh, now, how do we think about environment and deployment? So, one, thank you to the uh, to AWS and the AWS Lambda team um, for finally announcing uh, environment variable support as of, I believe it was 11 days ago, as of today, for AWS Lambda. It makes dealing with uh, environments and environment variables significantly easier. Um, now, this 
we're going to cover a way that you can do this in a local environment um, from a developer perspective uh, and, and how we used to have to kind of do this and deal with um, environment variables on AWS Lambda and kind of how we can do it now, um, now that we support, uh, now that AWS, sorry, supports environment variables natively. So you'd have something like a .env file in your, uh, in your local development environment, um, and that's just basically going to be a set of key value pairs for environment variables and their values. So as an example here, I think we have a, a Stripe API key set up because you want to do payment processing um, from your Lambda function. Uh, so in, in your local environment, you would require this .env package. It's a Node.js package that will automatically load these environment variables. You don't need to do this in production on AWS Lambda anymore. Um, so we'll talk about actually how to get your environment variables up and deployed with your service. Okay, so now we, we kind of have an idea of how we can at least think about working with environment variables locally with this, with this .env file. Um, now, how do we actually manage different deployment environments uh, for Lambda functions, right? You, you want to create a microservice, a Lambda function, and you don't necessarily want to push to production right away, and you might have more than one development environment. Um, you might have staging. You might have staging one. You might have staging two, right? You might have multiple teams um, working on a specific service. So the easiest way that we found to actually manage this um, is just by having, and don't check these into, uh, into version control, by the way, um, but by managing different .env files. And having, uh, so for example, we have a development environment, a staging, and a prod environment. So you just prefix .env with .dev.env, .staging.env.prod.env. You write a deploy command. I like to write uh, a lot of stuff just natively um, with command line tools, just write command line tools in JavaScript. So I might build our, our deploy command uh, in JS, um, in Node.js rather, but your DevOps team can, can configure that however they want. The idea here is that when you deploy to Lambda, um, your deployment pipeline should be able to accept some sort of end flag, and you can set prod to it, uh, and then it knows to grab the dot prod, just based on the string value prod. Um, it knows to grab the, the production environment variables, um, package that into your system. Now, this is uh, the old way of doing it, and you'd actually put it in a .env file um, on AWS Lambda. Nowadays, you can actually, as of 11 days ago, you can actually update the function configuration uh, and set the environment variables that way. And so actually getting your service to Lambda from this deployment command that you're going to have to configure yourself, you're going to have to run some functions here um, from the AWS SDK. That's uh, create function, update function code, update function configuration. Um, how do we think about naming these on, on AWS Lambda? Um, instead of just calling your service your service, uh, well, we can use Lambda versioning. Um, or what, what we do, because it's easier to manage from a DevOps pers uh, perspective, sorry, is uh, just add a suffix indicating the environment that your service is located in. So if your service is named your service and you're pushing it to production, you set underscore prod. Um, this way, when your DevOps team or your software developers are looking at all of the functions available to you, uh, they can immediately see, okay, this is production. I'm not going to touch this. I don't want to mess with this. But there's a few development environments here. Maybe we didn't clean up. We can delete that. It's not a problem. It's just for grokkability and really ease of use. So your, your team's not freaking out, wondering what's in production, what's ready, and what's not, right? So from there we go to, uh, to microservice versioning. How do, we, how do we deal with versioning? Well, AWS Lambda actually provides um, immutable service versioning, which is great. Um, now, we want to map some sort of client request, like your service slash a specific version um, to the, the specific Lambda version, right? Now, you might want to name those versions. Um, you might want to name them using, like, semantic versioning, which in, in Node.js land is the uh, kind of like the, it's the de facto standard for how people do versioning. Um, so how do, you, how do you really create that mapping? Well, on your deployment, instead of specifying, you now your DevOps engineer will typically be responsible for building a command line tool like this. Um, now, 
your deploy command would take a flag like version and you'd specify a version. Now, how you actually deal with this uh, using the AWS SDK um, is you'd set the publish in when you create a function or update your function code, you'd set the publish configuration to true. Um, and then Lambda is automatically going to create an immutable version of your service for you. And now you're going to get a number. Um, that's just an integer value, like one, two, three, the number that's essentially been published to AWS Lambda. Now you can create aliases, um, string aliases for any version number. Uh, so that would be like the standard way to do something. Like say you want to name your version uh, Keith. Um, you could create an alias that, that maps Keith to version one or version two or version three. Um, but oftentimes you're going to want to do something that doesn't match that regex pattern that create alias supports. So you're going to want to do something a little bit more complex here. Um, so this uses Sember as an example. Um, now, a semantic version might be 1.0.0 for your first major, major, awesome production release. Same sort of steps. You'd set publish to true. Um, you're going to get some number back as the version number. But instead of dealing with the create alias function, what you're going to do is you're going to create a DynamoDB mapping. Um, so you're going to have a, a DynamoDB service set up. Uh, and basically just create a mapping saying this service with this string, 1.0.0, is going to map to this specific Lambda service and this version number. Um, now this changes your architecture a little bit because this doesn't use API Gateway in the standard way. And this actually sets you up in, in a more, in order to, to make use of this, you have to kind of set up a more hybrid approach where you get client request, your service slash version. Um, you'd have your DNS coming in from Route 53, that's like f.yourdomain.com. And that's going to hit uh, an Elastic Beanstalk gateway. Now, this is a gateway um, for scalability. You might actually want to build this in Node. Um, you can build a gateway in something like Node that's basically going to take the client request, determine what version you're trying to hit, and then it's going to talk to DynamoDB really quickly and say, hey, what Lambda microservice are we trying to get here? Um, it's going to get that information from DynamoDB, execute your service on AWS Lambda, and then return everything back to your client. Um, and this is kind of what the, the hybrid architecture with this, what this really looks like. Now finally, the last point I made was legacy application interoperability. This is actually the easiest part. Um, and this is the, the wonderful thing, the awesome thing about serverless. Um, one, there's the AWS SDK. So you can use the tools that AWS has already built uh, in, in a number of different languages um, to just call lambda.invoke and, and give your service name uh, anytime you want to execute a function. Now, if you've kind of followed my advice here, um, and there's some stuff we've glossed over, like how to, like what your DevOps engineer is doing when they're creating these deployment scripts, et cetera, um, but if you've kind of followed our pattern for how we do things, you have f.yourdomain.com. That's mapping to most of your, if not all, of your publicly available microservices. So uh, you can now access all of these services just over HTTP. So, Every, uh, every language that you work in is going to have, or the vast majority are going to have some sort of HTTP library for you to really easily um, just make a get or a post request or what have you uh, to your microservice based on the gateway that you've set up um, for your services. So really easy to, to, uh, to hook in to your old legacy applications, whether it's an old Rails app, a Python app, um, you name it. Uh, easy to connect to. So just as a recap, what we've gone over here for practical serverless development and the organizational tooling around this. We've covered sharing, we've covered discovery, kind of at the same time, um, environments, deployment pipelines, microservice versioning, how you can think about that, and finally, legacy application interoperability. And the tools we used to cover this uh, was, I mean, a full AWS feature set, right? Route 53, API Gateway, AWS Lambda, of course, for serverless, um, the, uh, the cornerstone. Um, Elastic Beanstalk, if you want to build a hybrid gateway. DynamoDB, 
Um, if you want to, uh, if you want to deal with this hybrid gateway and do some, some more computation on the gateway side. And then obviously Node.js tools and setting up your own command line tools, et cetera. Now the alternative, um, you, you're, you're welcome to build this and I'm welcome to talk, sorry, I'm happy to talk to any one of you after this talk is over by email, in person, whatever, about how you can start setting this up within your organization. Um, the alternative is you can, uh, work with the solution that we've already built with, with standard lib. Um, we literally take care of all of this for you to make it super, super seamless and easy. Um, I've talked about our command line tools here. Um, super easy to build, super easy to test. You can test your services locally or in the cloud just using a single F command. Um, it's essentially just wrapping curl. It's very straightforward, very simple. Um, we're, we're very proud and excited about uh, what we've developed here. Um, and really we take care of, of all six of these, these concerns that I've uh, spoken to you about now. So. To, uh, to finish up, before I give, uh, give you back to Paul here, um, like I said, I'm Keith, founder and CEO of Polybit. We're building standard lib. Uh, we wouldn't be anywhere without, uh, without our developer community. Um, so I invite you to, to join and become a part of it. We're really happy, excited to be presenting here at AWS reInvent. Happy and excited to be aligned with Amazon. We're your library for microservices. You can uh, download a copy of this talk at standardlib.com slash reInvent-2016. Uh, if you want to see a copy of, of my portion of the talk, you can follow us on Twitter at Polybit or follow me specifically at Keith WHOR. Thank you very much. And now I will uh, turn it back to, uh, to Paul. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Keith. All right, guys. Uh, just want to leave you with a final thought. Um, I, when you guys are leaving uh, reInvent, on Friday or Saturday, whenever you guys are taking off, and you're going into your next architecture planning session next week, uh, I would encourage you to think about these sort of eight concepts and spend the time really defining the boundaries and what's most important for that workload that you're about to try to tackle. And I think what you'll find is that a well-defined microservice will imply its own architecture. Uh, Keith and I will be uh, probably right outside of the theater after this to take any questions. It's just kind of too big of a room to like actively take questions and things like that. So uh, we'll be right outside if you guys want to ask us any questions or come get a card or come talk to us about serverless. Uh, please take your time uh, and uh, fill out the survey if you don't mind. Let us know how we did and so we can try to make this better for you guys. Uh, thank you very much and uh, look forward to meeting some of you guys out front.